in a world they said they could never get to, they reached number 80. The Film File. Four Film Geeks by Film Geeks. Hello and welcome to The Film Filer. As the man said, episode 80. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. What you can't see then was Andy was just taking a big stretch <laughs> just before he uh, it's, uh, introduced it's himself <laughs> to the world. I'm not, not Yeah, we're recording this, this <laughs> a lot earlier than we normally do. We normally record it uh, early evening and uh, this time we've decided so we could have the rest of the day free to frolic in the sunshine or lack of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because last week we moaned about the sun. This week we're moaning that there isn't any and Andy's got a day off. So we're doing this early. So we might be a bit croaky, but we are here. Andy, how have you been? I've, I've been good. I mean, I've worked every day since we last recorded. So I am quite worn out and it's not been particularly busy because in Sheffield, there's been the Tram Lines Festival that has clearly stolen a lot of business from the city centre as music events are popping up here, there and everywhere, which has been great, except for finishing work and like trying to get a bus and it being rammed with loads of people heading home from it. But it, it it's impacted us slightly at work, which has made the shifts drag. And so I feel more tired than I normally would be at this point in time. And then I went and agreed last night while I was at work. Yeah, I'll get up early in the morning to record a podcast. That's great, Lee. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I feel good about it until the actual morning itself happened. (laughs) Until this morning when I actually woke up and I was like, oh no, I could do with another hour. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I'm I'm fine. I mean, I've I've spent the week, I've, I've not watched as many films as I normally do. Saying that, I've still got like four or five films to talk about today. But... Uh, I've also been starting to continue my um, re- like look back on Wes Anderson films. I did Rushmore and Life Aquatic last year, back end of last year, uh, and I meant to go straight onto the like continue through, but I didn't get round to it. I've now watched Tenenbaums and Darjeeling, and I'm I'm next up. Fantastic Mr. Fox, can't wait. And then Moonrise Kingdom, which I've it's the only one of his films that I've never revisited since it came out at the cinema. So it's That's, going to be like I'll, going back I'll, I'll in to fresh that list as well. with this one. I'd to that. I only saw it the once. Yeah. So I'm qu- I'm quite looking forward to that because I remember loving it, but I don't know why I didn't rewatch it. It's good. It just doesn't stand out as much as the other Wes Anderson films for me. Uh, it's very low key. It's it's still you know the genius of Wes Anderson, but it is it is low key. I caught it with the Fear Street trilogy at last. Uh, managed to see both almost uh, back-to-back, the, the last two, and thoroughly enjoyed them on your recommendation. And uh, I thought they were quite clever. I thought mm. they got better. The weakest one for me was number one because it, it just visited yeah. the horror tropes. But uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed them. I thought it was a, a great series, and uh, I'm very, very impressed with the young cast in it as well. I thought they, especially in the Witches Part 3 section, where you know everyone was yeah. attempting a, some kind of mid-Atlantic Irish accent and I thought you know it's pretty hard for <laughs> older actors to do it and I thought the younger the younger cast did very very well with it and thoroughly enjoyed it I thought it was a great series and just the right side of gory um and just the right side yep. of of scary and uh, uh my other half 
didn't really dig the first one, but really got into it by two uh, and, and thought three was the strongest one for her. Did you see what I mean about the backwards myth storytelling aspect that you start to uncover the clues and how things are being distorted over time as the characters are basically yeah. exploring it? Yeah, and I thought that was a really, really clever way of telling the story, yeah. Good, I'd like to see more. I'd like to see more. I hope there's another series. Oh, yeah. I mean, and fingers crossed, after the news last week when we said that they were thinking of ideas of how to expand it out, fingers crossed we will get to see it. Um, I've checked out the first couple of episodes of the Masters of the Universe Revelation, Kevin Smith's um, animated continuation of the old He-Man show, and uh, I'm liking it. I've read some of the, um, shall we say, critiques, and and we discussed this very briefly the other day between us, and, you know, when it comes to fanboys, you know I despair. Um, We've all got our little piece of heaven, and, and if anyone should intrude upon our piece of heaven then we we have to smite them heavily uh, and i do feel that that kevin smith and i think he's 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 made a rod for his own back but he has been attacked uh by fanboys by not being a fan enough or you've altered you've changed you've destroyed my dream project that it looked like this in my head but in reality it could never look like that type but he responded to them so he, he fed them he fed the trolls and, and they come back and snap I, I think it I think the fact that this series is now drenched with the tears of whiny fanboys makes it even more appealing. It's uh, you know the, these fans who are moaning about it are moaning spoiler alert because it's got a strong female character throughout it. And they've clearly never seen the original cartoon since they were 5 and are now upset that now we have one that actually tells a story rather than just having an episode Episode of after episode of Skeletor trying to take Castle Grayskull only to be defeated, and then a little morality thing for four minutes at the end going, this week we've learned the importance of friendship. The original cartoon was garbage. Stop hanging on nostalgic memories of what it was when you were a kid, because it doesn't stand up. What Kevin Smith's done is he's created a story, and much in the same way that a few years ago, a load of comic book fans cried when Captain America said Hail Hydra because they didn't want to read past issue one because they don't understand how storytelling works. This is Kevin Smith (laughs) surprising people with shock revelations. It's there in the title, Revelation. (laughs) Shock Revelations. To... And also the fact that it's called Masters of the Universe, not He-Man. Not He-Man. Yeah, and yes, He-Man will become more prominent in future seasons. But this was Kevin Smith going, you know what? I'm going to create something bold, daring, and show that everything is perilous and that anyone can be removed from the story at any point. Kudos to him. He's he's created something that makes the Masters of the Universe more than just a show to sell toys. Well, I never got Master of the Universe. It was slightly, I was slightly beyond that. I was chasing girls and drinking alcohol by this stage. And I, and I have seen it, but you're right. It was cheap animation, rep- repetitive, start that again, repetitive storylines. And you say the, the moralistic ending. So uh, uh, there was a lot of room for improvement. Um, I've only seen one. I thought it was very good. I got used to the animation style. Um, it's not aimed at me. I'm not a Master Universe fan. But if there ever was an entry point, then this series would be it. And, and on a, just on a sort of a side note, uh, I, I, I've said before, I tune into Kevin Smith's uh, uh, podcast. And, and, he, and he was defending himself by allegations that he'd been lying on Twitter, etc. But at the end of the day, who cares? Nobody cares. But 
I, I did a music video some years back. It was the first one for a, for a major artist. And uh, the lead singer of the band said, look, when it, when it hits, don't read the reviews because you will read all the good ones, all the positive ones, and then there will be a negative one or negative ones. And of course, yeah. when the music video landed, I read the reviews and I was going through them, positive, great, my ego's feeling good, happy with what I did. And there was one really standout negative one, just one out of, uh, out of a, a few hundred. And that's the one I remember. I don't remember any of the good ones. I remember the bad one. Yeah. And I learned a lesson. And uh, maybe, Kevin, if you're listening, as I know you're a big fan, uh, <laughs> don't don't respond and don't read the reviews because it, the, the bad ones will, will outweigh the good ones in your memory and sting. Anyway, we've got an excellent... No, we haven't. We've got a great show. We've got another great show for you, which includes... Reviews of Old, Jolt, Every Breath You Take, The Forever Purge, and the Sparks Brothers documentary. Which, of course, I am highly jealous of that you've seen it. We'll be bringing you a deep dive into David Fincher's dark, I was going to say moralistic comedy drama, but it's not very moralistic at all. <laughs> we'll, be doing, we'll be doing our deep dive this week into Fight Club, but we're not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> And of course, before any of that, Andy has been sweeping the internet to find you any nugget of information, any nugget of new release dates, schedules, filming starts, casting decisions in a section that we have always called and will always call the news. Well, I've lost my sweeping brush, so I've had to hoover the internet instead this week. Um, it's been a bit quiet, I believe, this week. It, I mean, there's still some news, but there's not... I mean, last week we had loads. I mean, I've, we had about 45 minutes of news items. Wow. That's how much news there was last week. Whereas this week, I think I'm glad that we've got more movie reviews this week to balance things out. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to have a very short show. Um, especially if we're not allowed to talk about Fight Club. Because we, we've, we've already broken the first two rules at the start of the show. <laughs> anyway, on to the news. As usual, let's just qu take a quick glance over how the box office has been scoring over this past weekend. So Snake Eyes opened this weekend in the US very poorly. Did anyone really expect Snake Eyes to do business? It was a G.I. Joe spin-off. Does anyone care about the G.I. Joe films? Uh, you know, it comes back to that thing that we talk about. Time and time and time again, which is executives who've got that little bit older, who look back fondly over their childhood and go, I have always wanted to see a Snake Eyes spin-off from G.I. Joe's. Not taking into account that, you know, the, the potential audience have no idea who Snake Eyes is. And he's also yeah. it's not connected to Marvel or DC. Exactly. Uh, well, it opened with a disappointing 13.3 million. Coming second place to Old, which opened quite strongly at 16.5 million in the US on an 18 million budget. That means Old is definitely going to be uh, going into profit. Uh, in this post-COVID landscape, properties like G.I. Joe, which never fared well critically anyway, and was never really a huge box office draw. They were moderately good, but never a huge draw. They're looking like more and more likely to struggle to find audiences who are more cautious about spending their time and their money in cinemas at 
in this day and age, which gets me a bit worried for things like Dune coming up because I know how niche Dune can be. And yeah. the latest the latest trailer is magnificent and it sells it yes, well. Yes, I saw it. I did see it. It, looked, it did look bold. I feel it's selling it well to me as a fan of Dune already. I don't feel that it's selling it well to a general audience yet. And that makes me worried because I don't want to see that fail. Um, in addition... The large drop-offs are continuing as Space Jam plummeted 69% this week. Uh, Black Widow took another 11.6 million in the US, making it a total gross in the US so far of 154 million, which isn't bad. It isn't no, bad. No, it's just about broken even. Yeah. It's not a flop. It's just not not a box office runaway success. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was always predicted that Black... I mean, you saw it after Endgame. There were so many people who said, well, I probably won't watch any more Marvel now because where can they go after this? And so Black Widow was always going to take this little hit of the people thinking, eh, do we need a backstory of a character who dies? Do we need to see this film? It was always going to have a li more limited audience than your Avengers, Infinity War, Endgames, and even Civil Wars, Captain America ones, which were established and huge group action films. I think I think 154 million in the US and it's around 300 million worldwide so far and it's still not opened in China which is where it's expected to pull in another 150 to 200 million. It'll be profitable. It'll be more than profitable. It's it it's in this post-covid world we should be accepting that as where we are. And we said this last week we've got to rethink the guidelines now. We are in a different world when it comes to to box office receipts. Of course we are opening films on dual platforms, cinema and a streaming service. So there is going to be a a change in the landscape to how we see and define successes. And we know in that opening week, it redefined box office takes. So, you know, with, with Disney's uh, Jungle Cruise opening this week, then I think we might start to see maybe um, a return to the old platforms and a question based on on jungle cruise is that opening on disney plus as well or is it just going straight to cinemas do we know that andy it's opening disney plus premium at the same time it, it's another one that eyes are on to see whether they can coexist the same way that black widow was used as an example this is a family-led one of a new franchise oh, so it, I, I was going to say maybe it'll do really well on disney plus but to be perfectly honest we just don't know do we right now we don't know at all. Uh, we will find out and we'll report back once we've had the first weekend of it. Now, disappointing news came to people in the UK who've been clamouring and looking forward to Green Knight, the Dev Patel and Alicia Vikander starring film, drawing from because Arthurian it mythos. Looks stunning. Yeah. Trailer looks stunning. It looks amazing. However, we're not going to get to see it in the cinemas in the UK. Oh. That because is disappointing. All chains across the UK were told to get rid of posters and all materials promoting the film as it's been pulled from the schedule only two weeks before it was due for release. Wow. Entertainment film distributors have cited concerns about the rises in COVID infection rates and the Delta variant, which has also seen the Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren-led comedy The Duke shift to next, next Easter. However, something doesn't wash with that reason. And the fact is... Other countries who are still under pandemic situations are still getting the cinematic release of this film. Okay. So is, there, is it more to it? Well, you could speculate, even with strong critical response that it's been getting, this was always going to be a niche film. And it's going to be a niche yeah. film in a market that is going to be crammed over the next month with Suicide Squad, Jungle Cruise, Free Guy, Don't Breathe 2, and much, much more. Maybe they were worried that it'd get buried. And other sources have reported that Amazon 
have made EFD an offer they couldn't refuse, which was likely more than they'd expected it to pull in UK cinemas. This is from not being confirmed yet by A24 and Entertainment, but sources close to me have said that, yes, Amazon will be going straight to streaming with it, and they've snapped up what they consider an exclusive deal. Two things on that, if I may. I think, firstly, it did seem the wrong time to release that kind of a movie when it clearly had written all over for me for release early yeah. winter. Yeah. It looked like an art film, even though it is, you know, it's a, a mythic, legendary film. It still has a, an art quality to it. So releasing it as a big summer release, I, I totally agree. I think it would have got lost. I think that the chances are we wouldn't have uh, had big box office receipts on it as already, as you said, in a, in a crowded market where people are clearly wanting the familiar first before they are going to step into. They want to see Disney. They want to see Marvel. Yeah. They want to see they want to feel comfortable going into the cinema. I do think there is a market for that film. I don't think it's a summer release. And secondly, so they may be thinking, you know, we can release it on Amazon, but let's do a cinema release for a limited amount of time uh, yeah. to tie in on maybe that autumn, that fall, fall release schedule. I don't know, but I, I can I can kind of see it. It's just a, such a shame that it's going to go straight to Amazon because it's a luscious looking film uh, and disappointing if if we don't get to see it in some kind of cinema release, even if it's just, as I said, a limited one-week, two-week window just to see it on a big screen. We know Amazon's done that before, and we know Netflix have done that before, so why not do it with this film? Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering whether this is what we're going to see going forward, smaller budgeted niche releases being snapped up by streamers who can offer more than what the box office potentially would have yeah. took in this post-COVID cautious world. We saw it with um, Gunpowder Milkshake that in the UK we've got to wait until September before Sky show it. This is the second film to do it. Maybe we'll see a few others drift off that I... that, that jam-packed release schedule. And I think that's where the critical thing is. It's a jam-packed... We've said this a few times. For the back end of this year, every other week there's big releases coming out, which makes it hard for the niche films to actually generate any revenue. Well, it makes it hard for the big releases. We saw that with Black Widow. I don't think it, it was, I mean, clearly it was, a, it was a critical success. And in that first week, it was a financial success. Yeah. But it's a jam-packed release schedule. You've got Space Jam exactly the week after. This week, you've got Suicide Squad and Jungle Cruise landing. You know, if people are cautious about going back into a theatre, then they will either pick the, pick the pictures that they want to see or they'll think I'll wait until, especially with uh, with with Disney, I'll wait a couple of couple of months where mm. I can get it for free, or I'll stay at home and I'll 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 watch it that opening weekend and, and go for premium. I think people are cautious, and and we've had. Uh, I know they've said there's gonna there's been a little bit of a drop off in the last couple of days, but last week the sensible amongst us were very cautious and and predicting a possible next wave uh, of COVID. So. You know, I keep saying it. We are in, in a different world and we have to be cautious out there. Uh, meanwhile, in news from A24, they've just secured the rights to Octavia E. Butler's sci-fi odyssey, Parable of the Sower, and have Garrett Bradley as director. He directed Time. The tale is set in a near future LA, which is devastated by collapse of society. And in it, a teenager with a unique gift must lead humanity in a battle against extinction. It sounds like a bold kind of film for A24. A24 are generally known for their low-key, like, you know, indie films and horrors and thrillers and chillers. Your 
you know, your Midsummers of the World and Green Knight. So this sounds like a big, bold kind of outing for them and a very different kind of approach. How they're going to approach it, who knows? But it's A24. I'm always interested in what kind of things they deliver. Yeah, with you on that. Another group that I'm always interested in what they deliver, even if it doesn't always tick my boxes, is Blumhouse. And Universal and Peacock have nabbed the rights to Blumhouse's planned sequel trilogy to The Exorcist. Yeah, I saw that land this week. If you'd have said to me three years ago, a sequel trilogy to The Exorcist, I'd have turned my nose up in it and says, no, no, never touch it, never touch it. But as soon as Blumhouse's name was attached, I got a bit more interested. And David Gordon Green, who gave us the Halloween revival and is doing the next two films, is confirmed to be on board to helm the first film, which is set to hit cinemas in 2023. And Ellen Burstein has also agreed to return to the franchise to reprise her role as Chris McNeil from the 1973 film, making it a true sequel to The Exorcist. Well, let's be honest. Uh, I mean, while The Exorcist is probably the best known, uh, and still for me, one of the scariest horror films I've ever seen, influential still to this date. Yeah. The sequels bar, uh, I'll put a sidebar on this one, number three, certainly The Heretic and uh, one version of Exorcist at the beginning were very, very, very poor. Uh, Exorcist 3, on the other hand, the if you ever get a chance to see the director's cut, is an absolutely stunning piece of filmmaking, which is not really uh, an Exorcist film. But uh, from what I gather, the studio sort of had to tag it on as Exorcist 3. But um, it is called Legion, and it's, it is a marvellous and spooky, spooky different, close to seven than I would say The yeah. Exorcist. And I never saw the Paul Schrader version of, of his original cut, because uh, film fans, if you're aware, that Rennie Harlan... For whatever reason, the studio chose Rennie Harlan to direct Exorcist uh, the beginning uh, and replace Paul Schrader, who then went back and remade his own film. But I never saw that. I've only seen the the dreadful Rennie Harlan version. Uh, this new film will see Leslie Odom Jr. play a father whose child is possessed. And in desperation, he manages to get in contact with Chris McNeil, who he knows has gone through a similar circumstance. And she comes along to help. Interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Did you ever see the Exorcist TV series that came out a few years back? I caught the first two episodes, but then heard it got cancelled and thought, why am I investing my time into it? I was enjoying what I was seeing, but I didn't it want to watch... really good. I didn't want to watch a series that would inevitably end without resolution. Well, it made it through to two seasons, after all. Uh, the first season being the strongest. The second one, not that it wasn't good at all, was just, just went in a diff slightly different mm. direction. But the first season was absolutely fantastic. So it did make it. It did have a full resolution to the first season um, and did have a second one. Both well worth checking out. Really, really, really good. Highly recommended. I've still got them logged on my tracker, which tells me that I've only watched two episodes out of the whole lot. So at some point, I will, just to clear that tracker out, go back into dipping into it to work through it. I'll let you know when once I've finally done it. Yeah, you'll trust me, you'll enjoy it. Fast 9 writer Daniel Casey has been hired to work on the feature adaptation of the much-beloved 70s anime Battle of the Planets or Science Ninja Team Gatchaman for, to give it original title. Now, the big shock here isn't that the project exists, but that there was a writer for Fast 9. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they just made it up by having sort of dinky cars and, <laughs> and, and just driving around a track and going, we need some dialogue. The cars had to stop here. I, I, I thought that's how they did it. Is that just me? I don't know. 
<laughs> well, you know, that aside, no doubt he's now been given a fresh set of crayons to work with after having eaten all of his previous ones writing the script for Fast 9. The Russos, as well as the original anime creators Tatsunoko, are on board to help adapt and expand the IP in depth with plans for this film to be the start of a multimedia expansion of the property. Uh, for those who are too young to remember, and I'm not, this was my age, age group, Battle of the Planets. I spent many a morning during the summer watching episode after episode of this. The much, be, the much beloved show was an Americanized version of Gatchaman, which followed five young orphans trained from an early age to be elite intergalactic team known as G-Force, protecting the Earth from otherworldly invaders. In its original anime from Japan, it was protecting the Earth from a transvestite human and his um, legion of transvestite army. You can see why it got changed for the American audience. Not quite kiddie-friendly. <laughs> uh, but I've always had a lot of love for this. And I tracked down some episodes of it a few years back. And it was one of them that I went in with trepidation thinking, was it as good as remembered? And it was. It still stood up. So I'm excited. Not because Fast Night writer Daniel Casey, let's be honest. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not impressed with him so far. But the Russos being behind it, that gives me some confidence. Because even if they're just producing, they always have their stamp on everything they do. And so you can kind of trust whatever name they put into whatever area to deliver something as a result. I remember with the series, I do remember it because it came out sort of post-Star post, post Star Wars. And they had a moralistic He-Man type ending, didn't they? Every episode where some robot had to go and say, you know, just because... Um, just because uh, you've got no friends uh, and you are lonely and sit in your house alone doesn't mean that there aren't friends out there in another galaxy protecting yeah. you. It was that kind of thing, wasn't it? Yeah, and that 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 whole robot aspect was one of the additions that was added purely for the American release and the like UK release that followed, and was never a part of the original Gatchaman story. So that was, like you say, it was to give that same kind of He-Man moralistic tale and have a real feel-good aspect so that the parents would let their kids watch this weird-looking Japanese animation and not think, you're not watching that trash again. Because it gets to the end and it tells them something nice and the parents go, oh, I like this. It's educational at the same time. And then they walk away and leave you to watch teenagers dressed up as superheroes leaping out of a jet that combines together and uh, beating up alien menaces. Marvellous. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's, it's such, a, such a strange paradox that we had all those... Uh, 80s cartoons with a moralistic message and yet we still screw the world up it's it's incredible yeah we clearly didn't listen we had more morals pushed at us in 80s cartoons than than any other time and we're still screwing the planet up take that as you will muse on that one folks well you're musing on that one uh, netflix have done well with army of the dead and sweet tooth according to their quarterly report army was checked out by 75 million subscribers in its first four weeks and Sweet Tooth managed 60 million. Netflix have around 209 million subscribers globally, which means that 36% of them checked out Army of the Dead for at least two minutes. Why two minutes? Netflix say that if something's been showing for two minutes without someone pressing stop or moving on to something else, it means that it was a deliberate choice to watch it. And it's not just, you know how Netflix auto starts things in the background every now and then? You'll hover yeah. over something and then you go out to make a cup of tea and you find out you're five minutes into the show. It's basically to eliminate that accidental starting. Netflix are also planning to release a prequel to Army, which the trailer landed this week of Army of Thieves. Uh, that was due later this year. And a spin-off anime in 2022. And in addition, 
Snyder's Stone Quarry Productions have now signed a two-year deal with Netflix, allowing the service first look on any of his projects, which also includes a sequel that has been confirmed to Army of the Dead. This deal came only weeks after the announcement of Snyder's Rebel Moon, which we discussed last episode, which will be produced for Netflix. And Rebel Moon will start shooting next year, with plans for it to start a whole sci-fi franchise for Snyder for the channel. Once that's in the can, Zack will head back to zombies again. And as Snyder says, the new deal is planned to bring as much quality content as I can and do it on a giant scale. Big projects and big movies. And regardless of whether you love or hate what he delivers, I love the fact that he's getting a chance to be fully creative with this. He's not getting interfered with and he gets to deliver his own thing. And I think, forget this restore the Snyderverse. We don't want him to go and get manipulated by Warner Brothers executives and blame throwing to get thrown out again. Let him deliver what he wants. I was just about to say, he's, he's got no time then on that busy schedule to go back to the Snyderverse. At no, this particular it, point. it's pretty much made it unlikely for him to ever go back anyway, because he, he's basically lined up for at least three years worth of continuous con- content here, either as producer or writer and director. So why would he go back? Why would he interfere with his schedule on these things that he's been basically given a free reign, here's the money, do what you want with, just to go back and inevitably have a bad experience again? Yeah. Let Zach play with his own toys. I kind of like him playing with his own toys to a degree. I've still not rewatched Army of the Dead. I know that you made the mistake of rewatching it. Um, Yes. I'm maybe just going to... this and uh, I'll say no more. I think uh, just check out previous episodes. Yeah, I'm, I'm maybe just going to live with it as a one-off watch that I enjoyed and not risk messing that enjoyment up by going back to it. Uh, speaking of Netflix, and they've announced plans for the live-action Pokemon TV series. Yeah, I saw that. Just landed that news, didn't it? It did, yes. Joe Henderson, who's the current showrunner on Lucifer, which is set to end at the end of this next season, he's set to write and executive produce it. He's previously also worked on 112263 and White Collar. And the project's in early days, and so there's no real details yet. But with Netflix being the home of multiple Pokemon shows already, this is clearly their next step, along with live-action versions of other anime properties, such as Cowboy Bebop and One Piece. If they can get the standard of real-life Pokemon that we saw in the Detective Pikachu movie, then this could be something This could be something lavish for the fans, but also for people who've never jumped on board Pokemon. Because... I've dabbled with Pokemon, but I find it confusing as to how many different services there are of it and where do you start, where does it go, what what, what should I watch? A live action show gives someone like me, who's always been intrigued by it, a chance to jump in and start from fresh. My eyes glazed over that last <laughs> news section. Completely glazed. I was, I was playing with dust. That's how interested I was in Pokemon. Moving on to some Marvel news, shall we? Yes. So we've got some casting. More casting for Black Panther. Michaela Cole, who you may know from I May Destroy You or Chewing Gum, she's the actor and writer of both of them, has reportedly already joined director Ryan Coogler on the shooting of the Black Panther film in Pinewood. Details of the character is completely under wraps, as is how the loss of Chadwick Boseman is going to affect the story going forward. All that we know is what we've previously reported, that it's going to bring in Atlantis versus Wakanda. And those opposing factions of technologically advanced civilizations hidden from humanity for all these years. But we don't know the details of characters at this point in time. 
And I'm absolutely flabbergasted at how well Marvel are playing secretive on so many productions in a world where there's always someone with a mobile phone ready to snap something. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think they've done remarkably well. And you know what? It's it's about time that we can be surprised again. I love the idea of being surprised by yeah. by a movie. I love the idea of 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 not knowing anything. Like I, I remember you and I looking at each other when J.K. Simmons appeared at the end of uh, <laughs> Spider-Man: Far From Home and going, "Wow, that was just an utter piece of of cinematic delight." Yeah. That if we'd have known it was going to happen, we would have we'd have been expecting it if it appeared in a trailer. So I, I kind of want to know what's happening, but also I'm I'm looking forward to the surprise of of when at some point they will reveal something. I I have a a speculative theory, and that's all it is that there's going to be more than one Black Panther. Yeah, the title is Wakanda Forever. So uh, I I that's that's my particular take. I just don't know, but I am intrigued. I have like every other fan. I have a script in my head of what I think Wakanda Forever is. And clearly that's when you, as we've seen with, as we were talking about with, with He-Man Revelation, when you've got the script in your head, it's never going to be the same movie. But, you know, a chance to dream, as, as Shakespeare said. Elsewhere in Marvel, Ant-Man Quantumania is now on principal photography, which was confirmed by Peyton Reed on social media this week. Uh, the film's not due to arrive until February 2023, which means that, by the time it's finished shooting towards the back end of this year, it'll give it a good year and a bit to get the post-production. With something like Ant-Man, clearly it's going to be very effects-heavy, so it gives them as much time as they're going to need in order to make that look spectacular. And Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is now has now got its shooting schedule planned out. James Gunn always said that once he'd finished all the promotional tour on Suicide Squad and the post-production, he would then be moving straight on to Guardians 3. Well, Suicide Squad is on our doorstep. It's ready for release this weekend in the UK. Americans, you have to wait another week. Well, apparently the script's been in place since his dismissal from Disney. And uh, in the meantime, he's been tweaking and uh, revisiting it and revising it constantly. So it's going to be the best possible script he can produce because he's had no deadline on the script. So looking forward to catching a little bit of news, some casting news on that. Of course, the big fan theory on that one is Adam Warlock. Will he appear and who will be playing him in this film? Yeah, uh, production's set to start in November. As for speculation on Adam Warlock, if it's not Henry Cavill, I'm not interested. <laughs> Keanu Reeves. <laughs> there has been rumours of Henry Cavill talking with Feige for potential appearances. And when we were discussing this at work, my instant thought was like, so Adam Warlock is the perfect specimen. Henry Cavill is the perfect specimen. It's a no-brainer. Captain Britain. <laughs> Captain Britain. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I've, said it. I've, I've long wanted Captain Britain to enter the MCU, and I know there's a load of people out there who feel the same, and I would love it if they actually do bring it. I'm not convinced that it's going to happen anytime soon, but Cavill will be perfect for Brian Braddock. So, of course, if we do some Marvel news, we've got to keep the balance right, and I have some DC news. So Michael B. Jordan is developing a Superman project, over at HBO Max. So amidst of all the excitement that was the announcement of J.J. Abraham working with Ta-Nehisi Coates developing their Superman movie, there is uh, there was speculation that Michael B. Jordan would uh, be playing Superman in that. Well, apparently, he's actually figuring out his own project about the Val Zod incarnation of Superman. And this is so far is part of um, HBO Max. 
and sticking in the DC universe and sticking with HBO Max because this project was uh, announced initially as a film, but no one could figure it out. And now apparently it's a HBO Max movie. And that is the casting of Batgirl. In the Heights, Leslie Grace has been cast as Barbara Gordon, um, which has been pretty quick because they only announced the movie a couple of weeks ago. It looks as though it's going to be primarily for HBO Max rather than a cinematic release. They're doing a lot with DC on HBO Max to expand out the other universes of DC. And they're very clearly just creating projects that aren't necessarily linked together. And I think... I feel that that's the right move for them. Well, you know the guy who's been playing John Constantine for the last couple of years since his own series? Matt Ryan. Well, apparently Matt Ryan has been asked to stand down from the role because he plays it in Legends of Tomorrow because HBO Max are developing their own Constantine series. Yep. Which is a shame because he has been the the go-to guy to play Constantine. He's got the character down pat. He's played him over you know, several years now since the uh, the short-lived series. It's a shame that he's not coming back to the HBO Max. And I know they were looking at going somewhere different with the representation of the character, shall we say. We've already spoken about the new Romero Estate dead film, Twilight of the Dead, and the non-Romero Estate animated Night of the Living Dead. But now another Romero-inspired zombie project, sci-fi TV's series, Day of the Dead, which claims to be a reimagining of Romero's film, and by that, I mean a completely different story, lifting the name in order to try to sell it. It is only a couple of months away now. It's due in October. And and this is what I mean by it has no relation to the actual property that it's claiming to be an interpretation of. It's going to follow six strangers attempting to survive the first 24 hours of the zombie invasion. What's that got to do oh, okay. with Day of the Dead? Absolutely nothing. Uh, Stephen Kaczynski, who gave us The Void, is directing the first four episodes. That makes me a little bit intrigued. I'll probably yeah. be checking it out because I do like to, even even the bad zombie things, I do like to check out. And it just seems that a lot of Romero-inspired and linked properties are flooding out, maybe to try to battle against the constant spin-offs of Walking Dead that's happening. And it's the only way that you can have a franchise that's going to go up against that is to have a name like Romero tagged to it in one way, shape or form. Yeah, it is. It's I mean, the the rights to the uh, Romero films are, are all over the place. They are owned by funders, different production companies, different uh, different outlets, right, left and centre. So unless it had Romero's name on it, then I never saw that as, as particularly canon. Saying that, I still think that the the best remake was the uh, uh, Zack Snyder version of of, uh, Dawn of the Dead. Sticking with horror, and after a long time in the wilderness, the Paranormal Activity franchise is set to make a comeback. Mm, Yeah, I noticed that. A few years ago, Jason Blum was pretty determined in saying that the franchise was done, and Blumhouse were not intending to go back to it. So why is it back? Well, not only did Blum confirm this week that it's still happening, he's confirmed that the films are already made. The film has already been directed by Will Eubank, who gave us Underwater, and written by Chris Landon, Happy Death Day and Freaky. Okay, now I'm interested. In Blum's words, Paramount wanted to continue Paranormal Activity. I probably would have left it alone, so they wanted to continue it. But I thought if they were going to continue, you gotta... It was tired. There was no way to continue that road that we'd already been down. So I really encouraged all the creative people involved to think of something new. A lot of people who are going to see the new Paranormal Activity were three years old when the first film came out, so they don't even know those older movies. I thought, if you're going to redo it, 
you better really redo it, not try and expand what we did all the, all those years ago. So his reasoning for bringing it back is because it gives him a chance to just completely scrap it and start afresh with a whole new franchise based around paranormal activity. Chris Landon being involved is the name that really drags me in. I've, I've loved his Happy Death Day. I've loved Freaky. I think he's a, a skilled writer who manages to tap into genres pretty well. I'm interested to see what he does with it. Count me in. Final bit of news. Neil Blomkamp's sequel to District 9 is still being written. Now, we finally got told that there was going to be a sequel, and we reported on it about six months ago. Uh, but it's still in the script development stage. As Neil Blomkamp said, the script continues to be written. It's looking good. It took a decade to figure out, to come up with a reason why to make that film as opposed to just make a sequel. There was a topic in American history that the second I realised that that would fit into the world of District 9, it felt like an awesome way to do a sequel. So yeah, it continues to be developed and it's getting a lot closer. Now, he's not said what era in American history has inspired him to do a District 9 spin-off. He's basically said it's not going to be just a sequel, so it's going to be an alternate story set within that framework. Now, given that the first film paralleled with Apartheid in South Africa, with American history, don't be surprised if it does something around race relations, which have been a huge significant factor in the past 100, 200 years of um, American history. I think that's a, that's a pretty good bet on that one, Andy. We're still waiting for more details, but let's see. I'm excited anyway. I do like Blumkamp. I think he's a great creator. And if he can even get half as good as what District 9 was, I'm, I'm on board. Interestingly enough, uh, the full trailer for Neil Blomkamp's new thriller Demonic uh, has just landed. There was a teaser trailer a few weeks ago, but the the full trailer's landed and that looks it looks a, a different ball game for what we expect with uh, Blomkamp, but it looks very, very intriguing. And that's it for the news. If you're a fan of this particular episode and previous episodes and you haven't got round to hitting that subscribe button, then we insist that you do so. Maybe not right now, but maybe in about 45, 50 minutes when this show is done. All you've got to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform, hit the subscribe button, remember to hit the like button, and you will make us very rich. No, I meant to say you will make us very, very happy. <laughs> if you want to know more about the film file, well, you can do that as well. All you have to do is head on over to Twitter and follow us at Film File UK. Head over to Instagram and follow us there, Film File UK. Or send us an email and ask us questions and we'll happily reply to them. Seriously, if you email in a question, I guarantee that I will reply. It can be any question, except for the colour of your underwear. about film. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't ask questions about what underwear I'm wearing. That's none of your business. <laughs> but yeah, if the you want to... The answer to me is none, by the way. <laughs> none at all. Commando. But if you want to email us, you can do so. Podcast at filmfile.uk. And still to come, we've got a ton load of reviews but before that this week's deep dive this week's deep dive takes us back to the heady days of 1999 i can't believe that this film <laughs> is over 20 years old and when i did my uh, research for it i absolutely was a gasp because this film left its mark both intellectually and at times physically we're talking about david fincher's very dark fight club how much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? From the director of Seven. The first rule of Fight Club is do not talk about Fight Club. We gotta take Fight Club up a notch. 
did you guys do? Without pain, we would have nothing. What kind of sick game are you playing? Brad Pitt. We're not killing anyone, man. We're setting free. This is too much. Edward Norton. Something terrible is about to happen. What did you expect? Fight Club. Based upon Chuck Bohalnik's novel of the same name, Fight Club, directed by David Fincher, starring Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, and Helena Bonham Carter, is the story of an unnamed narrator, played by Norton, who is disconnected with his white-collar job. He forms Fight Club with soap salesman Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, and becomes embroiled in a relationship with a destitute woman. The film takes you into an examination of postmodern advertising. It takes you into a world of postmodern masculinity. But of course, we can't talk about that. This is a film that when I saw it, I couldn't believe what I was watching. This film felt bold in a way that a film had not felt bold since 1970s cinema. This film played with some big ideas uh, and it was kind of a coming of an age story for those sorts of people who didn't know where they were in the world. Dramatic, stunning looking and still has an impact to this day. Andy, Fight Club. Can you talk about it? We're going to talk about it. And a quick warning to anyone who's not watched this film that's over 20 years old. Yeah, is spoiler that alert. <laughs> you can't talk about Fight Club without dropping some spoilers because we need to talk about the twist and we'll talk about it a bit later on. If you've not seen it yet, seriously, you, you can't have that been that bothered. Or if you've just not got round to it, pause this, go watch it, come back, continue listening. Either that or just accept you're never going to watch it and just be educated on it so you can impress your friends and pretend you have with what we tell you. So let me start off by saying that this is one of those films adapted from a book that I hadn't read the book before it came out, but I've read the book since, that is actually better than the book that inspired it. And even, yeah, even the book writer has said so. Uh, indeed, the follow-up graphic, graphic novel that he went on to write over the past few years, whilst it picks up the events from the end of the book, it adopts the style and flow of the film a lot more than the book. And who can blame him for doing so, as the film is not only a fantastic twisty tale of mayhem, but it's a masterclass in cinemat cinematic technique. Right from the opening scene, when I saw this on the big screen on its very limited release, and I, was, I pretty much was the only person in the audience of the, the screening that I went to, the thumping score by the Dust Brothers kicked in as we pull out from a CGI manifestation of the molecules and cells in skin through a bead of sweat along a gun barrel until we see that it's lodged in the mouth of Ed Norton's narrator. And at that point, I was like, what have I walked into? And I was in. I was straight away. As, as the narrator, Ed Norton, starts to talk about how he met Tyler Durden and his life was changed from the mundane existence into one of peril, danger and secret underground clubs, I was in. I was hooked right from that start and drawn along. Now, on the reveal, on the big twist, the reveal moment when the narrator follows trails of clues to track down where Tyler's gone to later in the film, it completely caught me off guard. And what a twist. The manner in which it's revealed that Tyler is the narrator makes full use of the moment. In many films, once you know the twist, the film starts to diminish on repeat viewings. It either makes no sense on reflection, I'm looking at you Jeepers Creepers, why on earth would a flying creature need a chuffing truck? Or the clues are more cinematic conventions which reveal that the story itself doesn't work on its own. Sixth Sense, great twist, but it makes no sense when you look back on it because uh, a lot of the setups of the scenes rely on you as an audience perceiving that things have taken place beforehand. But here, revisits of this film, of which... It's every year for me, at least. 
surprise me each time with more minor details that I didn't spot. Subtle reactions of others around the pair when they're talking. The side of the car that smack, that he, they crash and he climbs out. Ed Norton crawls out from the driver's side even though he wasn't the driver. Tyler was the driver. He was Tyler. Most of all, the biggest clue that I only spotted about six years ago was that he meets Marla early on in the film, way before Tyler has entered his life, and they exchange numbers. When she eventually calls that number to ask for his help, whose phone rings? Tyler's, uh, in Tyler's house that Tyler's been living in, not the narrator. And that should have been, a, that should have signified it. But I missed every single one of these clues because they're so perfectly placed that it just feels like a natural part of the story. Me too, Andy. I'm absolutely with you on that one. It's It was a great reveal. In fact, it's the way it's done also becomes a purely cinematic reveal as well because the film goes goes crazy as the narrator does when he, he puts all the clues together. It's just one of those fantastic moments and you're right you go back and you can join the clues it does make sense because they are so well placed and and but who would think it who would think that there's those two characters are the same character uh and and that's when it works it works wonderfully it's it's a it's a stunning piece of, yeah. of cinema reveal it's important to say that this film is more than just the twist it's more than just a story of a man with split personalities it's a deconstruction of the place modern man has in the world. It's a stab at consumer culture. It's a cynical revolution against corporate America, all rolled into one. The fight club of the title starts as a way to feel more like the hunter-gatherer male, Urgh, regain some of that artificial sense of worth. But it evolves into a statement against capitalism with plots to strike out of society. And it's very dark, but it's also very, very funny. It knows when to use the humour. And that's why it gained a lot of its controversy, because... This film could be interpreted in, in many, many different ways. You can, depending on your political point of view, as well interpret it in, in many different ways. You can see it as a cry for fascism, if you wish so, when uh, Tyler Durden puts his uh, Project Mayhem into the works. It can be seen, as as Edward Norton says, it uh, examines Generation X angst, the middle children of history, and the values and conflicts of, of of that particular generation where you're fighting against consumerism to try and, and, and find yourself. So it could be seen as, as a, an almost a, a communist ideal. There are so many different elements that you can bring to this particular movie, depending on your own ideology. And I think that's what makes it, a, and, I, and I mean this in, an, in a perfectly, perfectly good way, a dangerous film and a dangerous film because it makes you think and consider and that it, it is, a metaphor for whatever ideal that you bring to it, whether that's a push against uh, expensive, having expensive furniture or what it means to be happy or what it means to be a man. You can bring that, and it's almost a Chinese wall fight club. You write on it what you think is your ideology. And I guess that makes it dangerous to some extent because you are having to think for yourself and, and reach conclusions within it. But that's what makes it a clever, clever film. The casting in this film is magnificent. Edward Norton has never been better, as far as I'm concerned. Brad Pitt is energetic and fun as the alter ego. Helena Bonham Carter steals every moment that she's in with subtle nuance to her performance. That even just a simple eye roll that she does adds so many layers to what she's actually saying at the time that she does it. It's Great casting. You've even got Meatloaf in there. 
And you've got an early, early outing for Jared Leto, who I completely forgot was in this film until Jared Leto started becoming a bit more of a name. And it was like, oh, yeah, he got seven shades beaten out of him in Fight Club. And it all comes together beautifully because of the direction. The direction is so meticulously planned out. The integration of CGI scenes with real life scenes is so perfect. that The CGI elements stand up so well today. The love scene between Tyler and Marla, that was all CGI. And it looks so brutally real. And, and it, twisted as well. Absolutely yeah, twisted. The distortions to the frame, the, the cinematic techniques, the pointing out of burn marks in the top corner of the print, the single frame usage, all the cinematic techniques that you can learn about are embedded within this film and become part of the film, part of the narration and part of the actual engagement. It, yet there's a fourth wall breaking moment when Tyler turns and talks to the audience and you accept it. Even though it's not supposed to be a fourth wall breaking film, it works because you feel that at some level, Tyler's message is, is to you. And that's what makes this film work is that, like you've said, you can interpret it from whatever perception that you have. And that's because Tyler's words work for everyone. I had the great pleasure to interview uh, Chuck Pahalanyuk a few years ago, and he talked uh, ostensibly about actually Fight Club 2 and uh, as, as a comic book release. But, you know, as you said, he was he was very, very happy with how the film turned out and uh, much more so than any of his other film adaptations. Yeah. And as a film, it could have gone many, many different ways. At one point, Peter Jackson was considered the best choice to do it, but he was busy doing The Frighteners. Brian Singer was considered uh, Danny Boyle, who would have made an interesting film, uh, especially off the back end of Trainspotting. Mm. But of course, it went to David Fincher, who'd had an unpleasant experience with um, 20th Century Fox, who were the distributors behind it after directing uh, Alien 3. But he was the right guy in every sense of the word. He brought that indie film renegade feel to the movie. And it just made everything click. He was looking for a hit after Seven. He had a, a relationship with Brad Pitt. Everything about this. And to, to me, it's still his best film to today. I don't think he's suppressed it. And I think he's done some great, great work. But I think he's he's absolutely absolutely nailed it was it was one of those perfect storm movies great casting i mean at one point russell crowe was considered mm. to play uh tyler durden matt damon was was on the list but again the perfect storm edward norton brad pitt david fincher helena bonham carter and they just make this film absolutely work so interestingly enough even though this is now a, a considered an absolute classic when it came out it had a disappointing box office and a lot of the film critics absolutely shredded it. The New York Times, for instance, said a contemporary manhood that should could be misconstructed as an endorsement of violence and nihilism. Roger Ebert said it was visceral and harsh dead, a thrill ride masquerading as philosophy. It's, it's interesting to note that this found an audience, I think, through the fact that it was kind of a cool film rather than people listening to it. I can see it as being a hard sell. And I remember yeah. I remember the imagery that came out around the time of, of the bar of soap with, with Fight Club in. But at the time it was it it wasn't met with a lot of love, especially in the States. I even remember a, 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 it could have been The Guardian, it could have been um, the Times really slating this, calling it outrageous and, and puerile and forgetting that it was it was a, a 
a piece of brilliant filmmaking that that hit you on that was satire but on on turned up to 11 on sensory overload but my interest in this film before it came out was sparked by, by there was cinema cinema public information trailers that were That's basically right, yeah. the exits are to the front and rear and then like urine is sterile you can drink it done by tyler or the narrator and i remember seeing them at the cinema a few months before it came out and thinking this intrigues me. What is this? And that's why when the film came out, I knew I had to watch it. But they only got shown for a short period of time and then they kind of got pulled. And I think it was because the negative reaction and the distributor looked like they wanted to just bury the film and give it a very small release. I was so pleased that I got to see it on the big screen. And I got to see it on the big screen again only a few years ago. And it was, even though I watch it every year, it's always a great film to revisit. A quick mention for the music score for the film from the Dust Brothers. As perfectly matched to the events of this film as Daft Punk's soundtrack were to Tron Legacy. I cannot imagine this film with any music other than the, the electronic um, mesh and moulding of different types of conventions into the soundtrack. It, the soundtrack itself is a great listen on its own. But as you listen to it, you feel the same kind of emotions that the scenes in which it was overlaid was used. Marvellous stuff. Fantastic. Probably its greatest legacy is that everyone knows about Fight Club but can't talk about it. In fact, one of my favourite memes is, uh, I went to this new thing called Fight Club last night. I was an hour late, so I missed some of the rules, but I've got to tell you about it. It's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. If you've not had a chance to check out Fight Club, then you should as a film geek. It is probably one of the heights of film geekdom. That, that we've covered. It is available on Blu-ray. There was a DVD cut, which was slightly, slightly shortened for violence in the UK, but I think that was restored yeah. uh, for, for the Blu-ray. Andy, anywhere else we can find Fight Club if we are we haven't seen it and we are desperate to watch it? Yes, it's currently available in the UK on Amazon Prime. It only popped up there about a week and a half ago, so that was perfect timing. Absolutely, and be prepared if you've not seen it to have your mind well and truly blown. And now something much more contemporary to talk about. Opened this week, M. Night Shyamalan's new flick, Old. Are we there yet? This beach, it's beautiful. My swimsuit is hurting. They do look small. Come on, let's play hide and seek. Have you seen my children? Mom, I'm right here. He was six years old this morning. Oh no. Mom, I'm scared. There's something wrong with this beach. We were chosen for a reason. What's happening? I don't know. I can't think. Old. So Old is about an escape to a tropical paradise resort, which turns horrifying when a group of beachgoers, including an on-the-rocks couple, realise that their private oasis is actually ageing them rapidly. With the years accruing by the hour, the race is on to solve the mystery and escape this trap. Andy and I had the chance to see Old together, uh, and I was expecting a maybe perhaps another sixth sense with a huge twist, because I think that's the corner that M. Night Shyamalan has actually sort of put himself in. This is probably his most, well, it's a twilight zone of a film that doesn't rely on a huge twist. This is a film that is at times emotional, thrilling, and scary. But for me, it slightly missed the mark from what is an initially a fantastic idea, but he's let down by being somewhat overlong. Shave 10 minutes of this film, and it's not a long film. Shave 10 minutes of this film, 
And while you're dealing with the human aspect of aging and the and the quest to try and escape, it would have added a sense of thrill. Even though all the contemporary characters are accruing in years, there's never a sense of um, never a sense of a ticking clock. And and to me, that's what ultimately stopped it being. A, a classic M. Night Shyamalan film, because the idea is absolutely stunning. Based upon a, a, a graphic novel called Sandcastles, I love the idea. Very, very Twilight Zone. But there are certain elements, and the more I thought about this film, the more those elements bothered me that stopped it being a good film from becoming a great film. I, I rated this, after I watched it, a three out of five. I agree with you that there's something. it's a great concept. It's a great story basis, and there's so many positives in it, but it's the presentation that makes it suffer slightly. Positives first, the cast in it are marvellous. Nobody overplays the role or tries to steal a scene. Everyone plays very naturally, which makes the surreal mystery feel very grounded. Gail Garcia Bernal's husband coming to terms with his wife's illness and her affair that we discover throughout the film is our initial focus. But when you introduce characters such as Rufus Sewell's bigoted doctor who's suffering from schizophrenia, he adds a chilling menace to the group, but never feels overly menacing. He just feels like he's in the background lurking and you'd never know what he's going to do next. And I, I said at the time that we watched it, the one thing that I love with Shyamalan is his camera work and the fluid nature that he brings to a lot of his films. He likes to do tracking shots. He likes to do sweeping shots. And it allows him to do minor changes in a single scene that catch you off kilter. There's a couple of great moments where the characters are all discussing things on the beach and the camera is positioned between them and it's rotating round slowly. So, you, I mean, and this is something that you won't get on the home release. This was perfect for the cinema because the surround sound in the cinema, the voices were going behind your head and coming back to the other side. Yeah. And by the time it panned round, something had changed in the shot. Someone had moved away from it or something had changed in the background. And that is that is the skill that he brings to making things. He uses this kind of camera trickery on set to just keep, keep you off kilter. It keeps your focus disrupted. You're trying to listen to the voices behind you, but you should be paying attention to the images in front of you and the reactions in front of you. However, over the past few years, Shyamalan's been working with lower budgets and with full creative control. He stepped away from the shackles of blockbuster Hollywood. He's carving his own stories in his own way, for good or for bad. And it's one of those examples where when you've got full control, maybe, maybe you do need someone there to tell you when to hold back a bit. Yeah, I, I'll totally agree. I mean, the the constantly traveling one shots uh, with the camera moving and coming back to a scene work really well and uh, and 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 give the film give the film somewhat of an edge because as i said before i think what what lets it down is we we kind of aware of what the 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 threat is it at times just doesn't feel that threatening and i think the he embeds himself with some interesting characters and I've really got to point out fantastic performances and I didn't recognise uh, one of the actors, Thomas in McKenzie, who was in mm -hmm. Jojo Rabbit, uh, who is absolutely marvellous, along with Alex Wolfe, who are uh, uh, dazed teenagers, shall we say, without giving anything away for the plot as, as they walk into sort of a rushed adolescence. I like M. Night's more smaller films. This is a smaller film, but it's a great premise that that kind of I thought fell apart in Act Three and and didn't know where it wanted to end. 
what I did like about it, as with all of his films, there's a, a, a subtlety to his to his uh, even with big premises, there's subtlety to all of his films, which I really like. And it's a decent enough thriller that could have been much much more. I felt a little bit let down because I think there was a almost a better film than than the film that we ultimately got. But it's a great idea. It's a it's an unconventional idea, but as kind of a haunted beach story. It worked really, really well. A great premise that just, I think, could have been delivered a little bit better. Exposition bogs it down a slight bit. Instead of doing adopting the show-don't-tell approach, M. Knight seems to feel that you show something and then explain it. And maybe the exposition being repeated multiple times is more to try to reflect on the fact that these people are trying to make sense of the beach that they're in. But we as the audience didn't need so much repetition. And... As for maybe editing some bits out, we both commented that at the end of the film, it should have ended about five minutes earlier. There was a great little reveal moment right towards the end, and then it goes on to just labour it a bit. It's a shame because there's so much in here that could have made this a four, four and a half star film. But it's those little flourishes that M. Night insists on putting in that kind of drag it back down again. A solid concept, worth seeing, got a lot going for it, but the execution let it down. Absolutely. So, Andy, you've seen more films than I have, as per usual. What else have you got for us? So let's stick with a um, kind of horror, and let's talk about The Forever Purge. The Animal Purge has been extended. <laughs> All rules no longer apply. Nobody hear the sirens? All crimes now legal forever. <laughs> it's the real purge. The Forever Purge! Help me! Okay, I've only seen three of the Purge movies. And what I did like about them before you start your review is they almost, again, have a kind of an anthology Twilight Zone type feel. So the first one was almost... Uh, an Under Siege movie. The second one opened up the world, very Escape from New York. Third one, again, explored the world of The Purge, but felt different than than the, the first two. So I've liked that element. But by the end of three, and about, to be honest, about halfway through three, I'd had enough of The Purge series. To boot, there's been a TV series about The Purge, and now we've got what's so far going to be known as The Final Purge. So The Forever Purge, this time... The NFFA are back in power and they've re- they've reinstated the purge. And the film focuses on a Mexican community who are made up of folk who fled Mexico but now find themselves targeted during the purge. But confined to their safe havens, they survive to the morning, only to find that a force of white nationals have decided that the purge should continue and anyone impure is going to be wiped out in what they now deem the forever purge. Now, the manner in which the purge films approach as elements of our own social and political world has always been an interesting concept. It's been something that I've got time for. And here, the look at immigration and wall building policies is explored in the underlying themes, as is the horrifying idea of what could happen if a certain person comes back into power. Again, the NFFA in this have just been re-elected after they got deposed at the end of the third film. We know that a certain person, when he didn't get elected, led to riots in the streets. If he got back into power, would we see something like this play out? And that's the interesting bit of this. However, the film itself, as you've kind of speculated is going to happen, just simply becomes another Purge film. 
with a family running from pursuers just because the context and setting has changed. It doesn't make it any different. This means that the predictability is still there and it's well executed. But I've been down this road a few times already and it just feels very regurgitated. You can't even argue that can you view this film as a film in its own right, as it requires understanding of the previous films in order to understand the rules and the motives of The Purge. Dedicated to the fans of the series only should check this out. But for me, the first and third films were the most interesting. Now, if they're not going to deliver anything new, anything different, I can read my political messages online. I do not need a political message bogged down in a bland, generic film. Okay. And what else do we have? So next, (laughs) every breath you take. Bill used to practice his therapeutic skills on the way home from hockey. How did you feel about the game, Evan? Dot, it's the police. We're still looking for a suicide note. Hey, what's oh, going hey, on? Hey, Captain! He's my sister! He's my sister! I know what you must be going through, and I'm very sorry. I think there's a curse on this family, but nobody to rage at. Nobody to blame but us. I'm not your enemy, Dr. Clark. Lock him down. Lock him down. Oh, this will be a Sky original. And I know how much love you have for Sky originals. I'm convinced that Sky go to blind auctions where they get told, (laughs) here's a box of 100 films, 10 pounds, 10 pounds, anyone 10 pounds. And when they buy it, they get home and they open them all up and go, oh no, we've got to show all these. Oh, we've got the Matrix. We've got the Matrix. And... (laughs) And this is where they get most of their Sky Originals, which is why occasionally they'll get something like Promising Young Woman had the Sky Original on it. Marvellous. But generally, it's bad news. So I approach this one with a cautious nature. This one has Casey Affleck in it. Generally, I find him quite interesting. And what I was met with was a film so unimpressive that by the time I came to write the review, I'd pretty much forgotten everything that I'd seen in it. Um, A psychiatrist played by Casey Affleck, who plays as bored as he can manage, finds his life and family targeted by the brother of a patient who killed herself. As the brother weaves his way into their lives, he begins to manipulate his wife and daughter and drive them against him. What on paper reads like a tense psychodrama with echoes of Cape Fear plays out in a ploddingly dull manner with a cast who seem as clearly as bored as it as I was. In addition, there's an early scene in the film where they use Google to find out something about the brother's writing career. And sadly, that makes a twist later on in the film make no sense at all. No spoilers here. I'm not going to spoil it. But if you search for an author online, there's certain things that come up that straight away should tell you that the twist can't work. The Sky, It's a Sky original, one from the blind auction that Sky clearly go to. And this one, despite the star power involved, it just isn't any good. No one involved in it feels like they actually cared about the film that they're delivering. And yeah, it's instantly skippable, instantly missable. However, watching films like this does make me appreciate films like The Forever Purge a lot more. And what else do we have? So next, on the flip side, Jolt on Amazon, which is an Amazon original, was an absolute blast. Hello? This is Detective Vickers. Sounds like your guy was involved in some pretty sketchy business. I'm going to find who did this. If you go down that path, you are never, ever going to get better. Deal with her. You spent years being forced to repress your anger. But now, you have seen how powerful you can be when you embrace your rage. 
Oh, seriously, are you going to make me go through the whole face-stomping, bone-breaking, making-a-mess routine? OK, fine. I'm not saying it's a good film. It's not, but it's a fun film. Kate Beckinsale, who hasn't been doing much recently after years of fighting with vamps and lichens in the Underworld series, was the only reason that I tuned into this to see, oh, what's she been up to? Let's have a look. You know what? It was fun. She plays a woman who has a medical condition that makes her fly into rage at even the most minor of annoyances. However, a bodysuit harness, which she uses to shock herself, hence the jolt of the title, keeps her calm, mostly. But when a possible love interest, who may naturally calm her, is killed, her rage sets her on a revenge spree. And jolt is pretty much on the same level as films such as Crank in that it isn't taking itself seriously at all. So if you just jump in for the ride, you can have an absolute blast as Beckinsale beats away through the underworld seeking retribution. It was fun. It didn't outstay its welcome. It was witty. I had a ride with it. I, I Strangely, I'm not drawn to that, Andy. Uh, as much as I, I like Kate Beckinsale, and I, I, know, I mean, I'm so impressed of where her career has gone <laughs> that she has become a, a tough-ass action star. I, I'm still still not drawn to it. It, like I say, it's not a good film. The same way that Crank isn't a good film. But I, I can I can drop myself down to a certain level with these elements of film, as long as they don't try to be pretentious or think that there's something more than what they are. And I'm happy to enjoy it. It's the throwaway blast. But my film of the week is a documentary that gets a very limited single show screening this week before it'll eventually come onto a streaming service or home release. And I'm so jealous that you've seen this. And this is so jealous. Edgar Wright's the Sparks Brothers. Who are Sparks? They're otherworldly. Odd. A total enigma to me. They've always consistently pushed the envelope. They're doing something interesting, but you can't quite put your finger on what it is. Sparks! Sparks! We are Sparks. Dude. Top of the Pops, Thursday night. I remember thinking, what is that? Word of mouth begins. I love it. My favourite is John Lennon ringing up Ringo Starr. You won't believe what's on the television. What? They're the best British group ever to come out of America. When I read that this documentary was about the hugely influential enigmatic bands that not many people remember, I was quite confused. They're still making music. Surely people know who they are. But after the, over the past week at work, I've discovered that not many people do. I've been asked, is this a spoof documentary like Spinal Tap? which had me doing a double take at the person who asked that. I've had someone say that they've never heard of them, even though I've got about seven or eight of their tracks on the playlist in the foyer at work, and so they have heard of them. And even when I asked, surely you know this town ain't big enough for the both of us, blank expressions were looking at me while people shook their heads. And I was flabbergasted. And that was the point at which I realised that, yeah, maybe people don't know who the Sparks Brothers are. And then, as I was watching it, I realised that despite loving their music with its ever-evolving nature and venti anti-norm attitude, I knew very little about Ron and Russell themselves. And within the first few minutes, I was like, what? They're not British? So I didn't even know who Sparks were, despite the fact that I loved their music. This documentary, directed by Edgar Wright, is a fascinating journey into the career of the two very secretive artists who have released albums, over 20 albums, since 1971. Many synth-pop and alternative bands cite them as one of their biggest influences. Sex Pistols, Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, Erasure, Björk, even Kurt Cobain referenced Sparks when crafting some of the pieces for Bleach by Nirvana, and yet they're so little known. 
And it, but importantly for approaching this film, I'm talking to someone who knows their music, who was surprised at some of the revelations that were discovering about their lives here. But you don't have to be a fan of their music to follow and enjoy this documentary. This documentary advertises itself as this is about the band that your favorite band like. It's not saying this is about your favorite band. You probably never heard of them, but everything that you listen to has been influenced at some point by the Sparks Brothers, and it makes it such an engaging documentary. At 140 minutes long, you might think it's a tad long, but that time flew by. And by the end, I was slightly wiser to who they are, still quite baffled as to who they are, and I discovered there's a chunk of their music that even I've yet to explore. Fascinating, very witty, and a great look at the lives of two musicians who make music for themselves and have only sold out once in an ironic way. They were told to make a dance track. They made a dance track and they made the lyrics. So against dance music, it was unbelievable. Great stuff. <laughs> I'm jealous that you've, you've got to see this. I'm not a huge Sparks fan. I am a fan. They were in a music video that I shot and they made a... a uh, an interesting and fun little cameo. Uh, I have a friend who was the original bass player for, for Sparks who's in the film. And at one point uh, I was asked to get involved with it, but it, it went nowhere. So um, I, I'm interested to see this. Interestingly enough, I've got a, a lot of friends. Uh, uh, some of my peers are huge, absolutely huge Sparks fans. Uh, and they were saddened uh, by the fact that there's only one screening for this. When, and I ought to explain to them that as you've said, that they're, they're not a huge band, and uh, they're taking up space from 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 other other films. This will find its home on, on a streaming service some some way in the near future, I'm sure. But the fact it's got Edgar Wright connected to it is is a reason for more people to come in uh, and see it. Even if they're not fans of the band, they will come in because of Edgar Wright, uh, and and that's a positive for the band. So I, I am. Disappointed, I cannot make this Thursday. I have a, a, an obligation, uh, but I, I am looking forward to seeing this film. I've heard lots of good things about it, and I've been tracking it for the last couple of years. As I said, I, I know people connected to it, so uh, I'm interested to see what it looks like. Okay, well, uh, anything else uh, to look forward to happening streaming or hitting the cinemas this next week, Andy? Well, cinemas are the big thing this weekend, aren't they? We've got Suicide Squad, which is James Gunn taking on DC with a Dirty Dozen style approach. It, it, I'll be there. It looks I'll absolutely be there. Get me in there. And we will, be, we will be talking enthusiastically, hopefully, about it next week. There's also Jungle Cruise, which sees Rock the Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt in a fun action romp based on a Disney Park ride which looks very Pirates of the Caribbean meets Jumanji. And I've, I've heard some reviews say that it's got a feel of... Uh, Romance in the Stone. And I've also heard African Queen about it. Yeah, so I, I'm on board for this. I'm looking forward to it. I wasn't sold until I saw the trailer, but I now want to see it. Um, over on Now TV, we've spoken about it so many times. Knives Out lands on Now TV. Get it watched. If you've not watched Knives Out by now, where have you been? Get it watched. Also, Summerland lands on Now TV and Sky, which is set during World War Two, and sees a writer, Alice, having a sequestered life upended when Frank, an evacuee from the London Blitz, is left in her care. Over on Netflix, Jean-Claude Van Damme has an action comedy out called The Last Mercenary. And I'm not really a big fan of Jean-Claude Van Damme, but in recent years, he's shown a, a comedic aspect to his roles that have kind of latched onto, especially when he had that short-lived TV series that we was playing a variation of himself. So I'm probably going to be checking this out and report back next week on that. Okay, well, 
that's about it for this week. But before we go, and we do this every week, we will give you our neat thing. Our neat things are something that we've watched, read, played, whatever has been interesting that we've enjoyed is our neat thing. And traditionally, and there's no reason to break with tradition, Andy, you go first. My neat thing this week is kind of a double whammy of a neat thing. Ted Lasso returned this past week. Oh, I'm glad somebody mentioned it. And boy, I fell in love with him all over again. There's something about him that's so charming and there's something about the series that's so easy to watch. And even when it starts off with a tense football moment and you think, I've got no interest in football. Oh, how that opened with that moment was a great way to start the series. It it was funny, but also quite dark at the same time. Yes. Uh, It's a welcome return. And I am so glad the Apple TV are continuing with um, such great quality entertainment. And I've said before that Apple TV Plus has great quality, even though there's not a lot of it, and how a lot of people might be put off paying a subscription for something just to watch one series. Well, if you are one of the lucky people in the world with a PlayStation 5, good news. Here's another neat thing. Download the Apple TV app from PlayStation 5, and when you log on to it, you'll notice there's a an offer for six months free Apple TV Plus Ooh. if you sign up. Is, is that are, enough of a reason for me to get a PlayStation 5, Andy? Uh, well, I, I, it's, I can think of hundreds of reasons to get a PlayStation 5. This is a great benefit. Even if you've already got an Apple TV Plus subscription, it will just add the six months free onto your subscription. So you won't have to pay anything for the next six months. Marvellous. Usually when they do these offers, it's for new customers only. But this offer is for anyone who's already signed up or not signed up. So if you've got a PlayStation 5, get logging on and grab it. And get if you've never delved into any of the shows on Apple TV+, Plus, you've got a wealth of content there that you can really immerse yourself in. Yeah, check out The Servant and check out Lisa's story. And for all mankind, all worth checking out, as well as Andy's just mentioned, Ted Lasso, which is brilliant. Yes. So that's that's my neat things this week. Ted Lasso has returned on Apple TV+. Plus. If you've got a PlayStation 5, watch it for free. Yay. <laughs> okay, so my neat thing is it's something I can't believe that I've not mentioned in, in the run of the series, and that's Trailers from Hell. Trailers from Hell is a, a web-based series. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. There is a, a web page for it as well, in which filmmakers from across all sorts of genres discuss and promote their movies through commenting on the trailers. So literally, you join in for two or three minutes, however, just slightly longer than the, the length of the trailer. Uh, so they are well-known people. The, 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 the site was put together by Joe Dante, he of Gremlins fame. Uh, many recognisable genre directors are involved, like John Landis and Edgar Wright, and, and they talk over a trailer, like a, almost like a director's cut, why they love that film, why it's a, an intriguing movie that you should see. Lots of cult classics, so predominantly horror, science fiction, fantasy. There's exploitational films in there. There's some big-budget films that have reached into the element of classic movies. So you can go along, watch it for two or three minutes, and then you find yourself inevitably drawn in so there are hundreds of hundreds of films you go down the list and you think i know i want to hear uh edgar wright talk about phantom of the paradise i'm in or joe dante talking about some black and white b movie i'm in and you suddenly spent two hours (laughs) looking at a hundred trailers it's a fantastic site trailers from hell you can find the videos on youtube 
or you can go to the trailersfromhell.com webpage and enjoy a multitude of classic, classic trailers. And there are even movies that you think, next time round, I'm going to make sure that I catch that. Have you seen, have you uh, ever gone to Trailers from Hell? Andrew? I've you know not, it? but um, I can see myself disappearing into a spiral down onto YouTube now that you've recommended that to me. As we spoke about this last week, how I latch onto something and I spend hours just going down and down and down further into that spiral. Thanks for giving us another few hours of my life. To... <laughs> it's, it's exactly <laughs> that site. I've been a fan of the site for years and years, and I, and I just can't believe. You mentioned it last week about going down the spiral, and I just thought, <laughs> Trailers from Hell, I cannot believe. It's one of my neat thing, and I and I kind of they they update kind of weekly every two weeks, and I've just found over the last couple of weeks there's a whole bunch of movies I've not been on for a good few months yeah. that I, I just had to check out, and and you know there's lots of films that that are those cult classics that you think you're the only one who knows about, and there's somebody uh, who gives you a little bit of background into the movie or a little bit of a bit of knowledge of the film that you didn't 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 realize. Fantastic sight. That's it for the film file for this week. We'll be back next week uh, with another show and our review, all being well, of Suicide Squad. Andy, anything planned for the week? Watching lots of films. Do I ever do anything else? <laughs> Let's be honest. You, you ask me that question every week and every week I, th I think, oh, I don't really do much with my life except for watch films. <laughs> and some people would be honoured to be in that position. <laughs> Me, namely, I've got to try and catch up. I've got a load of movies to try and catch up with over the next week. A couple landed on Netflix that I really, really want to check out. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, it's only after we've lost everything that we are free to do anything. Anything. <laughs>